So today we started the uh, group interviews, and it's always so lovely to start to meet you and to engage with you a little bit in uh, hearing about your practice. And after my first group this morning, I just had a little bit of time in between the two groups, and I went into the teacher room, and I sat down, and I just felt all this happiness. I just felt so happy to be here with you and engaging with you in this practice. There is something um, particular about metta practice. You know, that it, for those of you who have done mindfulness, it, it is different. It's a different practice. And this whole orientation towards the, the heart and awakening our heart of loving-kindness, and that, that just to, the orientation to keep turning our attention in that way. And we started doing that from the very first night, and I can already feel, personally, I, I very much feel the effects of that, of our, of our intention together and what we're doing together. And yesterday we had this more open day, which we haven't really done in the past. We've started right away with going into the phrases, and we had a more, more relaxed day where we were emphasizing more of the, the feeling of the metta and bringing an attitude of kindness to our experience as we were going through the day. And if it felt right to drop the metta phrases in, but without that uh, expectation... And there was a sense, and I think even when Sally was uh, giving some instructions and James, you know, there was that sense of, the, you know, let the metta just wave out, extend out, you know. And I kept having this feeling of just this waving out, you know, of the metta in all the different directions. And it was sort of how I was feeling through the day already yesterday and today and meeting with you, just this kind of, <laughs> things are starting to wave out <laughs> in the loving kindness. And that's what I find when I teach these retreats and the metta retreats e- each year that I, I like to do it because it feels like something starts to happen in the field at, through our collective intention. And maybe some of you have felt this as well, you know, already as we um, hold this intention in our mind, in our heart, to uh, wish well for ourselves and for others and other beings, other beings on the land, you know, in, in a way that's very, really natural. You know, nothing that we're trying to fabricate, you know, or we're trying to you know, make something into a particular shape or form. It just feel, feel what's there, you know, feel your natural uh, expression of kindness. No. And I think um, Sally was also talking you know, just about the simple, the simplicity, really, of the practice. That this doesn't have to be too complicated or complex, but to, to feel that just the simple expression of well-wishing or kindness. And, and I feel we've, we're already moving in that direction. And it makes me so happy. I really wanted to, to share that with you, that, you know, my sense of what, what's already occurring for me. And I'm very happy we have another week or so, you know, to engage in this together. At the same time, um, the first couple of days, 
You know, it's not just like, oh, wow, now we're really lifting. (laughs) It can also be quite challenging, you know, and, you know, talking to people and, you know, many people talked about how tired they were, you know, have been, you know, lots of tiredness coming in from uh, the daily life activities and um, different concerns and anxieties and fears and different circumstances that have occurred that are difficult and they're sitting with that and you know it's it's not so easy at the beginning of a retreat not even just the what we come in with but also just as we um, drop into the silence and settle more into the stillness we start to feel the tiredness or the sleepiness we start to feel some of the restlessness, the, the inner anxiety or, or agitation. We might have to start to feel some doubt, doubt about ourselves and why we came and is this the right practice and is this the right place and the right teachers and, you know, the doubt can just really start to uh, proliferate, you know. Um, these, are, these are called, in the classical teachings, these are called hindrances. Um, that's a, that's a, a word that was um, translated from the Pali word, the ancient uh, language uh, from the time of the Buddha, which is uh, nivarana, nivarana. And that word, I, I, like to, I, like, I wanted to look up that word because um, what does it really mean? What is the hindrance? And actually, the translation is uh, from the Pali means to cover over or to do be covered. Something is covered. And, and I think that that's an interesting way to begin to look at these particular experiences that the Buddha talks about because they, they actually cover over something. Um, and the question is, what is that? The two other hind- so-called hindrances or um, obstacles are uh, sense-, sense desire, sensual desire, the craving, really the kind of a craving for that pleasant experience through the senses, it's desire, or um, the opposite, which is aversion, the rejection of experience, mostly unpleasant, something we don't like, we want to push away. And so these are the five, these are the five mind states, they're called the difficult mind states, that cover over something. So it's a good question, I think. What is, it, what is being covered over? No. And I think that's a good question for us here on our retreat here. Because in a way, it's covering over some natural expression of our deeper being, of who we really are, which we might call even kind of a purity, a purity of our, of our, of our being, you know, a, um, a natural goodness, just a, a, a basic goodness that we are, or, or just this natural kindness, you know, that, that is inherent in who we are. And there's a certain way that maybe we won't even fully trust that that's true, <laughs> that there is an inherent goodness that we are. But the teachings and all the classical teachings and the spiritual teachings point to that, that essential core aspect of who we are as good or as loving or as wise or as um, 
boundlessly connected to all things. I mean, there's all different ways of talking about that, which we are, that gets covered over. So, so in our practice here, maybe we can think about it too, maybe just that this, our heart, the qualities of the heart, the, the, that goodness of our heart is, is somehow interfered or, or hindered, the access to that, the access to experiencing that. So, so when we get caught up in these more difficult states of mind, like, like the craving for pleasant experience, the rejecting the unpleasant or the aversion or the anger, um, the sleepiness or tiredness, restlessness or agitation, worry, whether both can be in the body, also can be in the mind, you know, when the mind is very restless or the body is very agitated or the doubt that starts to arise for us about ourselves and our practice, or how they can arise all at the same time. <laughs> we call it the multiple hindrance attack, <laughs> you know, where we're, we can feel really caught up in all of that. So, so we, we want to recognize those states when they arise, and then we practice, particularly it's so... Um, we keep repeating, particularly on this retreat, the emphasis of the kindness, bringing the kindness, because these states of mind are not wrong, they're not bad, it doesn't mean you're off track, it doesn't mean you've, you've lost your practice, they're, just, they're part of our, our path, they're part of our journey, they are part of our natural human Condition. We get tired. We get agitated. We feel doubtful. We we crave for pleasant experience. We reject that which is unpleasant. These are all part of our of what we find happens in our experience. So so we want to come into a uh, a wise and a kind relationships relationship with these states when they arise. And in the, in the same way that we have been speaking about uh, from the first night, to see if we can bring a quality of kind attention, a caring attention to whatever uh, experience we find ourselves in, particularly these, these more difficult ones that can actually feel like they're covering something over. And they can feel like they're covering something over to such an extent that that it can bring doubt. It really can bring doubt about what I'm doing here, if I have any capacity for this practice, if I have any any capacity to feel kindness or love. Um, There can be all different ways that we start to uh, create a story about who I am and and how, how, what my capacity is in this practice. And it really can bring, uh, uh, bring us down into more and more doubt. So if we can actually recognize that and just see it for what it is, and even maybe just saying, oh yeah, there's the doubt. Sometimes maybe even just labeling it or noting it, just saying, oh yeah, there it is, there's the doubt. And if I keep following that, if I keep feeding that, it's going to bring me down. I'm really going to start believing it. And they, it's even said that doubt is really the, um, the, 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 
the mind state that is the most difficult in that it can actually stop our practice. It can, it can keep us from, from, keep, from going. So we'll just, we'll just throw in the towel, we'll just give it up. It's like, I believe my story to such an extent that I am not capable and this practice isn't for me and it's not the right place and he's not the right teachers or whatever story we start to make about that. And then we just give up. So, so we have to be very careful when we see ourselves getting into that particular pattern of mind, is not to say that there m- may not be something worthwhile to really examine about that. It may not be the right practice. This might not be the right place. These may not be the right teachers. But <laughs> however, the only way we're really going to know that is by dropping more deeply into our experience with awareness and wisdom and present moment connection, and see what is true, what's really true. Otherwise, we're just caught up in a pattern of mind, and we may not even be questioning, or, or, or uh, we just, we're just buying it lock, stock, and barrel. So we want to give attention, we want to uh, uh, pay respect to everything that happens in our experience, so that we can really connect with what's true. What is true? What is really going on? Whatever, whatever the difficult mind state is that's arising, what is it? What's happening that I'm so tired? Is it really that I'm tired or is there something else going on? Is it just I don't want to be here? Is it really more aversion? You know, some, some way that I'm just wanting to just check out and reject this whole thing because it's just too confronting. It's too challenging. So we, can, we start to look at, the, at what's happening, question what's happening. With the, with the restlessness, what, why would I be so agitated or, or restless? What, what's happening? And as we, we start to look at that, we can perhaps get in touch with something that's deeper, that's, that may have been hidden, covered over from us. Understand a little bit more. So as we bring that kind, kind attention that is not uh, rejecting, and that is not demanding and expecting something else to be happening, but really opening to, allowing, accepting, receiving, with a, with a tremendous amount of care and sensitivity and kindness, moment to moment to moment. And you can see, maybe you can hear as I talk about this, really the difference between when we just really get caught up in a story about who we are or what needs to happen or who somebody else is and we just kind of, we're not really stopping for a moment saying, wait a minute, what's going on? What's going on? And when we do that, it just allows us that moment of pause, that, that moment of rest, just to, to look a little bit more clearly, a little bit more carefully and there's so much kindness in that. You know, in this, 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 this whole practice that we're um, offering and, and we're, we're engaged in together, it, it, the, the foundation of it is kindness. Just every aspect of it is to, is to come closer into connection with ourselves and our experience and the intimacy of what's occurring in the moment with 
others and the environment and everything I'm engaged in. Tremendous amount of sensitivity and kindness. And I'm, I'm really feeling this here uh, as, as we are gathering and, and participating in the retreat together. I, I'm, I'm being touched by the sensitivity that I feel from all of you as you engage in your practice. So it's, so it's here, you know, it's, it's not like we have to fabricate, you know, this, this metta or this, this kindness or, you know, where am I going to find it, you know, it, it's like just as we start to get a little bit quieter and a little bit more dropped in, it's, it's just, it's almost, it's like it's, sometimes I have the image of the ocean, it's like we're dropping into the ocean and we're just starting to swim in this ocean of kindness, this ocean of metta, this, this ocean of awareness and wisdom. It's here already. And, and maybe in the beginning, it takes a bit of trust, to trust in that. You, you may not really have that direct experience for yourself. And yet, you, something may be touched when you hear that. And, and there's something that says, yeah, let me, let me find out. Let me, let me see if it's true. And we pause and we get quiet and we open and we just start to touch something. And go, oh yeah, there's the, the whiff, the whiff or the perfume, you know, of that. It's here. It's all here. So these difficult mind states are not outside of our practice. And, you know, I want to just keep saying that again and again. There's nothing outside. It's not like we've lost our way. It's not like something's happening that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> if we can shift that view, kind of open the view to a more inclusive attitude or inclusive view, we can start to include everything that's occurring in this kind awareness, in this kind attention. Even if there is some judgment that arises towards ourselves, even if there is some blame that starts to come towards ourselves and we undermine ourselves, with, with some awareness, can we see that and then embrace that too? Hold ourselves in that place too. Just this, this embrace, this embrace, this... Um, in the, in the Metta Sutta, uh, there are these words where um, the Buddha says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And there, there's something so beautiful about that image of the mother uh, protecting with her life her child, her only child. And in the same way, it's like everything that occurs within our own experience, it's like protecting ourselves in that boundless love, that, that boundless heart, and cherishing ourselves. And as, as, as Sally was saying, like all, all beings includes us. <laughs> and all beings includes me. It's not like when we're um, w- extending out the loving kindness. It's out there and somehow I get missed. You know, I mean, I can, I can remember that feeling like, it, okay, you know, it's out there, but somehow I didn't, couldn't find a way of including myself 
in that. It always seems some way, some way separate. And so this, this, this field of metta, this boundless heart, it's, it's, this, it's in the center here, but it's including this. It's including me, it's including you, it's including all things. Oh, we, don't, we don't get missed out on that. So it's this attitude, this attitude of inclusiveness. This is metta, this is the loving kindness towards all things, all living beings, self and other and all beings. We, it, these, it's, not, it's not outside of our journey because we go through these difficulties with awareness and with wisdom and with kindness in order to come to the end of these difficulties. It's, it is the path. It is the way. There's no way around. <laughs> I can tell you that. I've looked every possible way <laughs> for the way around the difficulties. <laughs> there must be a way. You've heard that, maybe you've heard that expression of you know, trying to go in the elevator from the first floor to the sixth floor, but not, wanting, not having to go to the second, third, and fourth, and fifth floor. I just want to get to the sixth floor. But that's not how things work. You have to go through all the other floors to get to the sixth floor. So that is, that is our journey. We need to go through all of this. I remember, I remember when I, um, in my beginning of my practice, um, it was just so, so difficult for me to understand any of this. <laughs> There, there was so much, um, so much pain and so much aversion. I'm, I'm one of those aversive types. At least I was. Maybe that's changing. I don't know. I hope so. I don't know. James doesn't think so. <laughs> he told me. You told me yesterday. <laughs> you told me yesterday. There it is. There's the aversion. <laughs> more and more coming out. <laughs> But anyhow, but in, in those very early, early days, there's so much aversion when I would do these long, longer retreats. That's mostly what I was sitting with, was just so much aversion and so much anger. And I remember on uh, very early days on one of the three-month retreats, three months, lots of opportunity <laughs> to see the mind and the heart. And I remember this one particular time um, where I was just... It seemed like in my memory I was just in a constant state of aversion and anger. That's the memory. Now, it probably wasn't really like that. But on this particular retreat, in these earlier days, there were also a number of my friends on, on the retreat. And James was actually there as well. And, I, and there's a way, it seems, that it's... I don't know how the human mind works, but it seems like it's somehow safer to project your anger onto the ones you love. You know, I don't... It's, that, well, I'd have to understand that a little bit more somehow. But, you know, the people who are closest to us and the people who we, we know very well, we just, it's just like a lot of the, the difficulty comes out towards them. And so I noticed that I was just projecting a lot of my distress and my unhappiness and my anger onto my friends. And so it seemed like I was just perpetually irritated with my friends and what they were doing, and how they were eating, and how they were dressing, and how they were walking, and how they were behaving. And I know this isn't going to sound that uh, odd, 
because uh, it seems to be uh, not that atypical to experience this sort of thing. But in those days, it was, it was pretty intense, particularly on this retreat. It kind of culminated um, at this one point where um, uh, I, I, I decided I was just going to sit after breakfast. Um, uh, and I was... It was I, th- I think I didn't go to breakfast. I kind of sat through breakfast, and I was just going to sit and sit and sit. But what happens is this is at the Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, and um, as one of the work period uh, yogis had to come in and vacuum the... the it, we have a carpet. Uh, we did. We don't anymore. We have a carpet at the uh, meditation hall, and so I was going to sit there even when they came in and started vacuuming, um, but of course, I got really angry at them because <laughs> I was sitting there and didn't they know that I was meditating and they shouldn't be vacuuming? And all these very strange, you know, kinds of projections of this anger and this aversion. And, and then what happens is that it just turns, right? It just turns right back and just start to feel so bad, start to feel so terrible about my own behavior and my thoughts and my feelings and what's wrong with me and, and start to feel shame and discouragement, disappointment. And there's just this, this, this loop of, of pain. So pain going out, pain coming in, and, and there didn't, you know, often didn't seem much way out of that at all. Of course, this is at a retreat. And so the teachings and the practices are, you know, coming day after day after day, be kind, be present, feel what's happening, don't run away from the truth of your experience, practice the metta, the loving kindness, you know, so, so I'm working with all of this and working with all of this, and it started to really make a difference. I mean, that's what was so, so remarkable, and I think as Sally was saying too, you know, all of us have had very profound experiences with these practices. And that to, see my, to see my heart start to soften and to, to, to let go of those very difficult and distressing states of mind and start to be able to relax and open and feel the kindness towards myself. And as the kindness came in towards myself, of course, the kindness started going out to others. You know, because it seems that what's often happening within my own mind is what I'm projecting out onto others. It's like the, almost like wearing colored glasses. Those mind states can be so difficult, they just distort or color everything that's happening uh, through that view or that lens. And as that starts to shift, as that starts to soften, everything starts to change. It's not like even, you know, the same people were at the retreat and the same things were happening, but it's like a lightness started to come in, um, more, more warmth and uh, more brightness in, in my own experience. And as I, as I continue to practice um, this with this metta, because things were, you know, this was early on in the practice, there was a lot of, um, a lot of difficult uh, patterns of mind operating. As I continued to practice with the metta, uh, lots of 
hand on my heart, sending metta, sending metta to myself and to others, I really started to experience a tenderness, a tenderness that I would have never imagined was possible. It was never in my wildest days. I had believed so deeply that I was incapable of love and kindness, that there was really actually flawed. And, and it's really quite interesting to now, since I don't think that about myself, how deeply rooted that belief was for me, and, and I see how deeply rooted it is for others as well, and it's not true. It's not true. It's just a, it's a, it's, uh, the Buddha's, Buddha has called it like a dart, a dart. These, sometimes these beliefs, can't, they're so uh, ingrained in the, in the mind stream that they seem so true, like you can't even imagine that it wouldn't be true. But it's not true. <laughs> it's just a belief. It's just an idea that gets conditioned about who I am or the way somebody else is. And that dart, as the Buddha speaks, the dart can be taken out. The dart can be taken out. And as that dart is taken out, the whole experience starts to shift and change. Things appear different. Things look different. They're not the way it was. At that time, I started to call this, um, uh, it felt to me like a silent forgiveness. Like metta, the metta practice started to feel like silent forgiveness. Like I could start to forgive myself in ways that, because I, I was acting badly, you know, I was acting out of these difficult patterns much of the time. And, and I could just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And it was all happening in the silence, the silence of my own mind, the silence of my own experience. And that would just go on and on and on, this deep, deep forgiveness. And, and we will do more forgiveness. We'll do some forgiveness practice on this retreat too. There's this poem I love from Rumi who says, This is love, to fly toward a secret sky, to cause a hundred veils to fall each moment, first to let go of life, finally to take a step without feet. But this is love, to fly toward a secret sky, to cause a hundred veils to fall in each moment. And it feels like that. That's how my, ex- my experience would feel, like a hundred veils just falling. All that, that the way that my, um, my, my mind, my consciousness was veiled, covered over. And I couldn't see clearly. I couldn't access a deeper truth. And this sense of a hundred veils falling. This is love. Just the falling. First to let go of life, Rumi says. And what does he mean when he says to let go of life? What I imagine that Rumi means there is that we, we let go of life in the way that we know it. Because so much of our life experience is through the, the, the lenses 
of these distorted mind states that we're just not seeing clearly through these beliefs and through these ideas and our stories and our characterizations and our projections. And, and as I said, it's like wearing glasses, colored glasses, and, and we're not seeing the true colors. We're not seeing things as they truly are. It's hidden, hidden from our view. And so first to let go of life, it's like life as I've known it, this, this sense of me, this sense of other, the sense of the world as I know it, it shifts, it changes. Mm. Otherwise, there's these emotional veils, another way of talking about it. In that emotional veil, in the way that I was feeling in those early years, I, I felt so separated. I, I felt so, in that separation, I felt so isolated and alienated at that gap, that separation. And from there, that, in that separation and that alienation, the world does not feel like a safe place to be. There's a, there's a sense of, of, of threat, like things are threatening, people are threatening, and, and wanting to run away or wanting to hide away and, and not really sensing that I have the, the strength or the wisdom or the compassion or the capacity to really meet life as it is. And when I believe that, when I'm from the, that, that place of, um, sometimes we call it the ego, you know, the self, uh, ego self, that location where there's some confusion and, and we're not seeing things so clearly... From here, there's, this is where our needs can really get intensified because we need so much. There's a sense of so much deficiency or emptiness or, or hollowness that we want to fill that up. We want that to get filled up. So there's almost like we're looking outside. The world becomes a place that's going to fill me up because I've lost connection with the deeper source of my being. It's not here, so it must be out there somewhere. And so there's that, it sets up this kind of craving. It sets up a kind of searching or seeking out there for that which is going to fill this sense of emptiness, this hollowness that I feel in myself. So the needs get very strong. And then when I start to find something that feels somewhat gratifying or fulfilling like a relationship or a person or a situation, I can more easily get very attached, um, very um, uh, identified with that thing being or that person being what's going to do it for me, what's going to fill me up, what's going to gratify me, what's going to make me happy. And again, there's still some, there's confusion in that. There's confusion in that. There's not, the love isn't the problem. It's the way that I feel separate, and in that separation, I feel deficient, or I feel alienated, or isolated, or cut off in some way. So, so what happens is then, when we come into some kind of love, loving relationship, or caring relationship, that can be conditional or contractual, almost like, I will love you if, 
you know, I will love you if, and then, you know, fill in the blank, if you do this, if you do that, if you're like this, if you do this, you know, we just, we can have our long list of what, how that situation needs to be in order for me to keep showing up in, with my love. And it's kind of all based on this, um, the position of this separation. Somehow I'm, I'm not already love, I'm, al- I'm not already connected, I'm not already fully embraced in, in this love. So we start to set up all these conditions. In the, in the teachings of the uh, Brahma Viharas and the loving, in, in the Brahma Vihara practices in the divine abodes, each of the divine abodes have what's called a near and a far enemy. And since we're doing loving kindness right now, I'm going to just talk a little bit about the near and far enemy of the, of the metta of the loving kindness. Because what near enemy means is that it looks like, it almost the experience uh, uh, disguises itself as metta, in this case, as loving kindness. But it's not really the, the, the kind of loving kindness that we're speaking about, which is a real pure expression of our heart that's unconditional, that's not contractual. So the near enemy of loving, of loving kindness is what's called attached love or possessive love. It's really this, I will love you if you fulfill these conditions for me. And in a way, what we're really saying is, I will love you if you will fill this empty hole that I feel. <laughs> you know, if you show up in a particular way. And, and we can get very, very attached and, and grasping and um, uh, get caught up in a lot of these difficult states of mind in that so-called loving relationship. And, and, and it's really a lot about me. It's like, what's in it for me, and what do I need, and what do I want? And sometimes we're not, it's not so much about the other person and what they need and, and what they want and what would work for them, which is really what happens when we start to get into a, a, a relationship that is more caring, where we're really considering each other and caring about each other's needs and wants and um, but, but so we can get so caught up in, in ourselves. It's fixated. We get quite fixated on um, our gratifying our own needs in the relationship because that other is the source of our happiness, is the source of our fulfillment. But all that's really happened in this possessed love or this attached love is that we've become disconnected from the source of our own love. We've become disconnected from the source of our own innate goodness, our innate kindness, our innate uh, abundance, uh, infinite, boundless expression of love. We, we have such infinite capacity as human beings to love. I think Sharon Salzberg has one, the name of one of her books is A Heart as Wide as the World. A heart as wide as the world. That's pointing to our capacity of our own, of our own human heart is to love in that way. But when we get disconnected from that source, we can feel somewhat fractured 
like we're fractured in some way. And our, our world can become very narrow, very small, and we get very fixated on a person or a thing or a situation. And we're not really, we don't have access in the same way to that boundless love. And when that, um, when that love and that attachment becomes even more intensified, um, and, and this is the way I've been thinking about it these days, it's like an intensity of the craving, it's an intensity of the, of the grasping out of some sense of alienation. And as that even gets more intensified and the heart gets more contracted and more tight, it moves to what's called the far enemy of loving kindness, which is the opposite. It's like it, it just switches around rather than love. Now you have what's on the other end of the continuum, which is um, hate and anger and aversion and ill will. It's just the, the opposite of the experience. It's called the far enemy. And, and all, all what I, how I see that is it's just this intensification of the, of the grasping of the love. It's not that there's no love. It's just that love has gotten so compounded by the sense of me and what I need and what I want that then we lash out at what we love and what we want because we're not getting what we want. And that frustration and that anger and that agitation get so strong that we just want to hurt the thing that we love. It's so, it's so interesting. Uh, it took me a while to really understand that that's still coming from love. But it's so distorted. There's so much confusion in it that we're actually hurting that very thing that we love so deeply, that we care about so deeply. So hate, I really see that hate, this extreme um, experience of love, is really this, this, this love that's bound up so tight, it's almost like black coal. The compression, this compression of coal. When I, when I was reflecting on, on this um, intense, the intensification of this, of this, of this powerful force of love and coming more coal-like. I, I've told this story before, but it made me remember um, when I was a child and my parents put black coal in my Christmas stocking one year. They were so angry at me. <laughs> they, they were so disappointed in me that they expressed their disappointment through black coal. And I thought, how interesting how interesting that that would be the way that that, uh, that disappointment of their love would get expressed through that black hole. And it's so sad. You know, it's so sad that that, that would occur for a young child who, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm in confusion. I'm in fear. I'm in alienation, separation. Teach me. You know, talk to me. <laughs> Tell me how to come out of this rather than just, you know, putting the black coal in the, in the stocking. And so, it's, you know, to have that kind of thing occur when we're young, you know, and that's just a small thing given all the um, very traumatic things that happen for us 
many of us as children, it reinforces that negative belief. It reinforces that idea of who I am. You know, that I am really a bad person. I'm really unworthy. There must be something terribly wrong with me. And the more that that kind of thing happens, the more we believe it, the more it gets strengthened and, and um, uh, contracted in the, in the mind, the stream, in the heart. And what's so very, very sad about that story is that it's not true. <laughs> Again, there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with me. There isn't anything wrong with anyone. The only thing that has happened is the source of our love has become suffocated in some way. Just the heart has become compressed. The heart has become cut off. And we feel the pain of that contraction. We feel the pain of that disconnection. But it isn't what we think. It's not because there's something so incredibly unworthy and terrible about us, which is just the way that that belief got um, formed within our own mind, within our own heart. It's not true. So when we say, um, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, May I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be at ease. We're, we're, we're awakening what's really true about ourselves. It may not feel true when we say it. It may feel very mechanical. It may feel like, I don't know who, uh, if I'm, sounds, I'm saying it to myself, but I am so disconnected from the phrases or whatever. We're just trying to awaken. We're trying to awaken that connection to the source, to the source of our own innate goodness, the innate uh, essence of who we already are. And we're already, my teacher in India used to say, we're already swimming in the ocean of bliss. We're already swimming in that ocean of love and kindness. You know, and I, and I, and I keep, it's, it's wonderful to hear that because it does keep reminding me of the deeper truth of the way things are. So we're all very lucky that we have entered into a path of healing. We've entered into a path where we can awaken. We can awaken uh, our heart and our mind, ourself, to a deeper truth once again. The truth of who we really are and the truth of who others are and the truth of the nature of this world and all beings in this world and to come into a deeper connection with all things as it really is. So we talk about this practice as a turning. We're turning the mind, turning the heart, turning towards what is good, turning towards what is true, you know, just turning, it's, it, it, it's, it sometimes can feel like that too, like we just <laughs> the effort you know, that's needed sometimes to, to turn in that way. But it's an interesting question perhaps to ask, what is actually doing, doing the turning? And why is the turning even possible? Well, for a couple reasons. One is that there's actually something to turn towards. <laughs> 
If there wasn't, <laughs> this would all be for naught. But there's actually something to turn towards. But also, what's doing the turning is that goodness that's already accumulated within our mind and our heart and our being. We couldn't be here. We couldn't be walking this path. We couldn't be doing this practice if there wasn't already a connection with something very deep that, it, that is true and real for you. If you haven't already touched some kind of a loving, caring goodness within your own heart, because that is, is the power that is continuing this turning. The accumulated uh, uh, goodness that's already there is what's empowering this practice. And the more that we uh, feed that, the more that we encourage that, the more, th- more power there will be in that turning. This is a lovely poem from Hafiz, the 14th century Persian mystic poet. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we remain too frightened. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. In the same way, it's this light, the light of love, the light of love, which is holding all these different parts of ourselves, all these parts that may seem fragmented and alienated and confused and fearful, and then the parts that are very open and loving and caring and kind. There's so many different ways that are, are being manifest, and, and it's the light of this love, the light of the loving kindness, which just holds all of that, embraces all of that, and just allows us to feel more fully this tender embrace. Just as a mother holds and protects her only child, that quality of this loving embrace, the light of this love. So I'll end with this poem, which many of you have heard um, from Derek Walcott, which I think we have to always read on a meta retreat. Just fits right here, this love after love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit Feast on your life. Sit. Feast on your life. So, 
have heard that you have been singing in your yoga sessions. <laughs> um, I don't even know if the other teachers know that. This Terry's just sort of been sleuth in her, kind of bringing in some singing. And I also know that you haven't all sung together because some of you were in the morning and some of you were in the afternoon. <laughs> so when I heard that, I thought, we need to all sing together. <laughs> so I've asked Terry if she would come and sit here as a way to ending this evening and lead us in her singing. You can use the, you, you, this one, use that one. And we can all sing that metta chant together. So at the end of the yoga sessions, we um, sang some simple phrases to a tune uh, that we did the day before with another chant. So let's um, sing together. And those of you who don't know the chant can just join in. It's very simple. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I live with ease, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. May I be healthy, may I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be peaceful. May I be healthy, may I live with ease. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I be Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.